So as I was saying, um, Reverend Matthew's not here this week. We've been starting with uh, a little bit of music, a little bit of centering music, and uh, this line popped in my head, this setting, because one of the things that Judaism and Christianity and Jews and Christians share is the Psalms. I mean, we, sh- that's, we really, really share the Psalms. Uh, so I won't teach this to you, I'll just sing it for you. Psalm 42, this is by the late Rabbi Arya Hirschfeld. As the deer yearns for the brooks of cool water, so does my soul long for you. Isn't that beautiful? Here's how it goes. I'll do it in Hebrew and then English. As the deer yearns for the brooks of cool water, so does my soul long for you. Ah, Elohim, my soul thirsts. Ah, for you, ah, ah, Kayataro Alapike Mahai Kainafshi Taro Gelecha Ah, Elohim Sama nafshi le'el chai Cleanse our palate from our day now to enter this holy space that we are creating together. Okay. So, Matthew and I were discussing what to cover next, which is, you know, about a infinite possibilities, I would say, literally. And I was looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. I was thinking, let's turn our attention to some of Jesus' parables. Well, which one do I know the best, given that I'm not, uh, you know, versed? And uh, I could be, I just have never, you know. And and so we started reading it together. And um, The Good Samaritan is now such a, I mean, it's a, it's a um, part of our language, right, to be a Good Samaritan, so that it, um, it has so many accreted layers of associations and meanings that what does it mean to go back to the text and look at it as a Jewish teaching by a Jewish teacher? Mm-hmm. Right, so that's what I want to do with you, because then I just, I, I got, it was so interesting to me to look to look at it in that context but when you think of the good samaritan story what do you 
those who are familiar or even just sort of vaguely familiar, what, what, what are the associations it has for you? Just so we can put those on the table and then look at it with some fresh eyes. Stop and help people who need help. Stop and help people who need help. That's what the Good Samaritan does. And that's, that's, that's the story, right? Good, good. Um, but helping someone who is considered a, a, someone you should dislike and avoid. Uh, the Good Samaritan helps someone that you normally would dislike or avoid. You've got to read the story, huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think the Samaritan was a person who was disliked. We're going to talk about who the Samaritans were in, in, in Judea in the first century. It's fascinating, totally fascinating. Yes? I also, when I learned that it was a cautionary tale about not being codependent, the Samaritan stopped and helped the guy and put him in a hotel. He did not take him home with him. Oh, another layer. <laughs> the good Samaritan does not take the person home. He takes him to an inn, gives the guy some money, and goes about his life. Okay, good. So helping without being codependent. I like that. Yeah. Um, when I learned it in grammar school, the, the question that the nuns asked, was, who is your neighbor? Who is your neighbor? And that was the answer to who is your neighbor. Excellent. This, this, this parable will answer the question, who is your neighbor? Good, good. Uh, yes, Martha. Um, I think there's a legal aspect also, because there are communities that have good Samaritan laws in which you will not be held liable if you help somebody right. you if a good Samaritan law yes. is that you won't be sued if you help somebody uh, and, they, and they don't recover, you're not liable because you tried to help. That's, that's, that's cool that it has that association. Good. Yes, Arnie? And the, the message is in the title, The Good Samaritan, because in ancient Israel, good and Samaritan were not linked. Uh, well, we're going to explore that. We're going to explore that. Okay. Yes, Stuart? I've always wondered about what was wrong with the priest and the Levite. Right. That they didn't uh, do anything helpful. Why did the priest and the Levite walk by? We're going to look at that, too. Good, good. Here, let's start sending these down this way, and I'm going to hand them out going this way. Thank you. Sure. I have enough. It's so much faster than trying to go down a line. I'll leave one in your place, Joan. Here, here. Okay, <clears throat> so I'll read it so that it gets captured clearly on the recording. Otherwise, I would invite someone else to read it. But since I'm standing right next to the microphone, 
So this is from the, from, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. The law translate. you know what this would have been in the original? The Torah. What is written in the Torah, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. So these two commandments, love God with all your heart and soul and might, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, but he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. It's great teaching, right? Um, and that is the parable. So let's look first at some of the um, thing. Again, Jesus is a Jewish teacher speaking to Jews in Judea. Okay, And in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, Ve'ahavta l'reacha kamocha, love your neighbor as yourself. I am I use the yod by the way, uh, instead of the Lord when I'm typing things down, uh, because um, the Lord is a, is a, is in ancient Hebrew, in ancient times, and until today, we don't take the four-letter name and say it aloud. Instead, we use a euphemism, Adonai, which means our Lord. And so that becomes Lord in translation. But these days, we're trying to, many of us are trying to get back to the mystery of this name. And so we just write the four letters, yod heh vav transliterated into English, Y-H-V-H. That's why it's like that. And uh, so I will say, I am yod heh vav I just spell it out. Um, that's why it says that. So love your neighbor as yourself. I am yod heh vav um, and then look at the third entry, Deuteronomy 6, 5. Love yod your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That is a quote from the Shema. Hear, O Israel, 
Adonai your God, Adonai is one, and you shall love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, which is um, what Jews recite when we lie down and when we rise up. It's part of, it's, it's a, the most central, basic part of Jewish spiritual practice. So when the expert in the law, the, t- the Torah scholar, that would be another way of uh, putting it, when the Torah scholar asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what's the key? What's the, what, what do I need to, what, what's the central principle that I need to follow? That's Jesus, he says, well, what do you, what do you say? And he says, love the God with all your heart, soul, and might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, so what you, first I want you to understand is this was the accepted understanding of Judaism at that time. This was like, everybody knew this. In the uh, intertestamental literature, uh, there's something called the Testament of the Twelve um, Patriarchs. Is that what it's called? Uh, anyway, it's... It, it, um, the intertestamental literature is, is are books that were extant at the time, religious books, that didn't get inter- included in the canon, but we still have them. And so we know it was the popular religious literature and, and proverbial literature, wisdom literature of that time, where um, uh, in their testaments they say, this is the whole Torah, to love your neighbor as yourself and to love God with your whole heart, soul, and might. So this is something that was just out there. We know this from Jewish sources because uh, if you look at um, the entry that says Sifra, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Rabbi Akiva teaches, this is the fundamental principle of the Torah. And then when you read on in rabbinic literature, it means that every other commandment in the Torah needs to be interpreted through this commandment. Right? That's the understanding. Now, from what I was reading, and correct me, please, if I'm wrong, um, it became a common understanding for, uh, in many Christian circles that these two commandments supersede all the other commandments. Right? That all you need to do is love your neighbors yourself and love God with all your heart, soul, and might. Does that make sense? Yeah. That is a later understanding of Christianity. As, as the early Christians spread more and more into the Gentile world, and you were no longer required, this is all way post-Jesus, you were no longer required to accept the yoke of the commandments, circumcision, kashrut, and all the practices of Jewish life, in order to become a Christian, then this teaching started to be understood as these two commandments now supersede and abrogate all the other commandments. But it's very clear that, that to me, that that's not what Jesus meant mm. in this conversation. He's not telling us, therefore you don't have to observe the other commandments. He's saying what was commonly understood at the time, that this is the central principle of the Torah. Um, and uh, um, we also hear it from Hillel in the famous story. So Akiva lived in the late first century. Hillel lived in the, in the late first century BCE. Hillel predates Jesus. Akiva is later than Jesus. In this famous story, it says, A Gentile came to Hillel and said to him, 
I will convert to Judaism, but on condition that you teach me the entire Torah while I stand on one foot. <laughs> Have you heard this before, some yeah. people? Okay. And it's meant to make you laugh. The whole st- when you take it, when you read the whole series of stories about Hillel, they've got a real, um, they've got a sense of humor to them. Hillel said to him, what is hateful to you, do not do to others. This is the entire Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and study. Now look at uh, Jesus' last line. Go and do likewise. Just on the top, on, in the, like, it's almost like they're coming out of the same um, storytelling tradition. The whole Torah is love your neighbors yourself. The rest is commentary. Go and practice. Practice your whole life by, by, um, uh, uh, by contextualizing all of your actions and asking the question, am I fulfilling this core principle? This was the common understanding uh, in, Jew- in the first century, of, uh, among first century Jews. Many people ask why Hillel frames it in the negative. What is hateful to you, do not do to others? The only reason Hillel says it that way is because he's getting in this guy's face. He's getting in this guy's face. Teach me the whole Torah while standing on one foot. And Hillel says, well, here's what it is. Instead of saying, love your neighbors yourself, he gives it to him, gives it right back to him. What you wouldn't want done to you, don't do to somebody else. You know, because he knows when you read the whole story that this guy's coming to mock him, essentially. Uh, and that's, I'm just sharing that because many of us ask the question and then the way traditions develop, there's all kinds of teachings about why Hillel said uh, it in the negative. And that's fun and interesting discourse, but when you read the whole story, it's part of the story. I just wanted to say that. Joan? Um, one little thing that troubles me is uh, what is hateful to you, do not do to others, because especially in the world that I live in today, there's so many interpretations of what is hateful to you, uh, and they do it to others because it's not hateful to them. So it leaves a wide range of well, what, when I we would, what I would call hateful actions because in the eyes of that person, it's not hateful. The golden rule has a problem. <laughs> Love your neighbor as yourself, even in the positive, Joan, not just yeah, in yeah. the negative. Yeah, yeah. And so in the debate... Look at the one that says Sifra, down at the bottom of the page. Rabbi Akiva teaches this is the fundamental principle of Torah. In this discussion, that's not the end of the discussion. Because then it says, and I didn't include this here, because I don't want to go all, all the way, but this is worthwhile. Ben Azai, who is a colleague of Akiva, says no. The central principle is every human being is made in God's image. And then there's a discussion. And the discussion is very clear in the Talmud. Well, why? Why did Azai say that? Because what if you don't love yourself? You still have to treat the other person as a divine, uh, uh, in the image of the divine. So I just want to say that your reaction, and this is why I love studying Torah, your reaction is, was also the debate in, the, say, the fourth century as the Talmud was being created. Like, well, why is this the core principle? There's, there's, there's all kinds of holes in it. Right. right? And so there's a debate, just like you raised. So I wanted to point that out to you. Yes? Um, it seems to me that this, a 
and do likewise and go and study. Go and do likewise and go and study. They're not the same, but I was interested in the, the thrust of the language. You know, and I was thinking maybe there's, and this is just me, maybe there's a motif of this kind of story. And that if we were around in the first century, we might have come across other versions of go and, this is the whole thing, go and do it, or this is a go and study. That's all I was thinking about. And I wouldn't know enough to parse it any further than that. I just like the kind of literary quality that they both seem to share. That's what I was reflecting on. Yeah, it seems that do likewise is action. Do likewise is action. Study is not action. Study is not action. And here we get into another yeah. <laughs> incredibly um, vibrant ancient debate. Should, should you focus more on study or more on deeds? Right? We'll get, that's like a giant debate in, in Judaism and just a second, Joan. Uh, and uh, uh, so again, rather than answer your question, because I don't have the answer, I say you fit yourself right in again into an ongoing discussion of if, should you, should you, st and study here means studying for the, of, for the purpose of spiritual illumination, right? It's not studying so you can pass your bar exam, right? It's, uh, it, this is, when, we when the rabbis talk about studying Torah, it's to illuminate their actions, right? So there's a big debate in Jewish sources about which one should be primary, and there's no answer. Mm. The debate is the most important thing, as far as I can tell. Uh, but yes, there's a distinction, and then there's a beautiful debate debates about it in rabbinic literature. Joan? I ain't going to study war no more. <laughs> <laughs> so study doesn't have to mean what we think of as book study. Good, good. I think that's valid. Mm -hmm. uh, Gary? Study is not passive. No, study is not passive, but uh, th this is a human debate. Should I spend my time in self-reflection, self immersed in, you know, uh, expanding my consciousness, or should I just get out there and do good deeds, right? This is a great debate, right? And the answer is yes. <laughs> uh, Susan? I also like the idea that, that, that the similarity of grammar, as you said, kind of suggests a trope. A motif, a, mo a, a sort of folktale motif. That, uh, and I have no evidence to support that. It just occurs to me. Like it occurred to me too, just, just here. Yes. And that what I liked about it is that it kind of continues to cement the idea that, she, that Jesus was in that community. He wasn't in some separate break Jesus was in that community. That's why I'm pointing it out. Is that there's a, and, and that's where we're going to go deeper. So Jesus, a Jewish teacher, teaching this, to people for whom these references in this parable mean something different than they do to us. That's what I want to start unpacking. But I'm going to address your questions. Patricia. We're going to be quick. It's okay. Jesus, we have, I'm not in any hurry. Jesus is saying, go and do likewise, and it's about a, a short story. Hillel's the, the guy asked him about the whole Torah. <laughs> right. Not a, The whole Torah. Teach, that's what I'm saying. All I wanted to point is that Hillel's story is in... Yeah, I didn't give you the whole story because we're not studying Hillel in this class. Um, but Hillel, who is known for his gentleness and his forbearance 
and his uh, love of, of everyone uh, and who predates Jesus by a generation, uh, it makes sense to me that um, Jesus would be, Hillel rose to be the leader of the rabbinic academy, as it were. And again, I'm using the word academy in a, this, this, the, what would be a better word? Uh, academy is the academic translation. It's no more than a study group. It's a, a it's more like a, a fellowship, like a, a leading the fellowship of the the rabbinic fellowship, because uh, it's about it's about spiritual uh, illumination as much as anything else. Yes. I just had a second part. Yes. I've heard the thing about don't do what is hateful to you. Do do not do it to others. Mm -hmm. I've heard a description of it as which is also helpful. Um, you know, you know what you hate. Don't do that kind. I mean, obviously, not everybody does. But you know, you know what you hate to have happen to you. Don't do that to someone else. You might not know, and you'll probably be okay. If you're trying to do love someone like yourself, you know, we all like to be loved in different ways. You mm -hmm. But you know what you hate, you right? You know what causes you. You don't mm -hmm. do it. You're gonna, right? But if you Thank you. Love, so, I think if we got together every week and talked about what does it mean to love your neighbors yourself, and that's all we did, we'd be better people, right? And we studied it, and we talked about it, and then we practiced it, right? And that's why, just like us nodding, many of us, back then they had the same idea. This is the central principle of the Torah. The rest is commentary. Let's go and practice, go and study it. That's why I'm saying that Jesus is speaking in a Jewish context. That's what I wanted to point out. There are some more hands. Diane. My problem with the golden rule relates to, um, I forgot her name. Patty? No, Carol. who? Carol. 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 Sorry. The, uh, I, I liked what you were taught about enabling because mm -hmm. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's that's too big for me. <laughs> okay, well, too big. that's on the other side of the page. <laughs> We're gonna get to it because love your neighbor as yourself is the culminating statement of something known as the holiness laws in the Torah in Leviticus, which it's clear when you read it in context. We're talking about an action, not about a feeling, and the it's the it's the sum up state. When we, we're going to look at the back of the sheet. It's the summing up statement of this is what it takes to be holy. And we're going to look at it. Oh, even, don't turn it over yet. E I'm just kidding. Even so, uh, my trouble is with boundaries. Okay. Okay. So we're having our spiritual class while I'm trying to do a history class, and that's okay. Uh, Blaze. The priest and the Levite. Hold on to that. We're going to go to that in just a moment. Other hands. Uh, Gail? I'm not sure if this is accurate, but it occurred to me as we were talking, and Diane just saying, love your neighbor is too much for me, um, that Hillel is living in a period where there were many, or at least several, Jewish factions that were militarily fighting each other 
again and again and again over who would be a high priest, basically, and in charge. And so he may have opted also for one that was less constraining, more limited, mm -hmm. okay? Because he was living in a time where hatred and killing each other among Jews was really going on a lot. Oh, thank you. So maybe Hillel was choosing his words quite intentionally and carefully. On the other hand, we have no idea whether Hillel actually said this. <laughs> or whether it's a tradition. We, we know enough about Hillel. The stories about him are consistent that this would be a Hillel-type response. But we don't know when, if his words were recorded, how they were passed from teacher to student. It's the same with Jesus. We don't know exactly. When you study Hillel, which I love to do, uh, you get a feeling for Hillel, but you can't be sure that, that these are his words quoted because we have the microfilm from that uh, New York Times daily edition, that, if you know what I mean. Um, yes? Well, I'm hearing a slightly different saying. A slightly different saying. Right. Anybody know where Jesus says that? I don't know. No, I didn't look it up. But to me, that's like that's that's in there somewhere. It seems to me, and that doesn't have anything really to do with what's hateful to you. It's what you would like to have coming back. To oh, it has everything to do with it. It's just the opposite formulation. If you say elsewhere, the reason again, I should have put that in there. When, when we think of the golden rule, we think of do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which I believe are the words of Jesus. Right. No? What are they? I, 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 he says something like that somewhere, but that is not fun. Okay, there we go. We'll look it up later. Those are not the words of Jesus as far as... Uh, Similar to something in that. Okay, uh, Ellen's, Ellen's looking at, I call it Rabbi Google when I have these questions. Um, just one second, Helen. Uh, so... Uh, on the contrary, in my opinion, what I like about do unto others as you would have them do unto you, and what is hateful to you, do not do unto others, is there are two sides of the same coin for me, but, the, and I'm going to cut that off there, because the deep discussion about the nuances of this is what we should be doing with our friends every day, uh, but not more right now, because I want to go, an, an, go elsewhere. Uh, Helen. Yes. Reminded me of, I don't know if there's a connection in my mind to when we discussed at one point the value of ritual. And you talked about how ritual has value, even maybe you don't get the feeling, whatever, mm -hmm. but you do the ritual and then the feeling will come somehow. Mm -hmm. And that ritual is important. That's right. When two or three are gathered in my name, there is love, you know, it's like uh, that. And but if you don't gather intentionally, then you're less likely to keep your eye on the ball because we are going to be drawn by so many different internal impulses and external stimuli. So, yes, the value of ritual, it would be the same as the value of study. It's a focused time to get clear about what our intentions are when we want to imbue them into action. So let me leave that for now, too, because it's very important, again, because we are so secularized. When we hear the word study, we think about final exams, right? When the rabbis talk about this study, 
They're talking about studying the word of God so that they can be better human beings and more illuminated human beings. That's what study means in this context. So study, the connection between study and action are, are so connected, uh, they're inextricable. And so the question is, if so, if that, so we have to crank our secular academic understanding what study meant to us, which was, for me, you know, pretty oppressive and awful, actually, until I was able to study at my leisure. Uh, um, into what this means to be part of a fellowship, not an academy, who are seeking God. Right? It's a whole different context, what study means. Uh, what, what did you find out? It says, in the King James Version of the Bible, the text reads, Therefore, all things whatsoever you would, do, you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And then the ellipsis, and then shall also do to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the law and the prophets. Okay, so did you hear Rabbi Akiva's statement? Um, this is the central principle of the Torah. In Hebrew, Klal Gadol Batorah, the fundamental of the Torah. This is the whole law and the prophets. Again, to circle back to my first point, this was a common, this was the accepted common understanding of first century Judaism that there was a central principle and everything else stems from it and needs to be understood in the light of it. It says so in the Gospels and it says so in the rabbinic literature of this time. Matthew. They're saying that same, literally the same thing. Matthew uh, chapter 7 verse 12. Was that what you were reading? Yes. Matthew chapter 7 verse 12, thank you. Pardon me? It's embedded in the Sermon on the Mount. We're, yes, hopefully we're going to get to the Sermon on the Mount, or at least parts of it, which are also a very, very Jewish uh, uh, text. Yes? If you want to see something very interesting, pick up a copy of the Old Farmer's Almanac, go to the last page inside the back cover. One of the columns there, you have the versions of this golden rule from, I think, ten of the world's major religions, uh -huh. all saying essentially the same thing. Yes. It's also been a, a meme I've seen on Facebook. Yes, yes. All the different traditions that have a similar central pillar. Yeah. Well? One last question. Yes, Susan. Um, I was thinking, go and do likewise. Um, if if um, I didn't realize that Hillel was the head of the rabbinic. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe that was a lot like if, if today we said something like, uh, I have a dream, immediately everyone thinks of Martin Luther King, right? Right. So maybe at, when this was written, maybe all of those people immediately associated Jesus with Hillel, and maybe he was part of Hillel's... Um, he might have been in the school of Hillel. School. Because Hillel's most famous sayings, as they get distilled through centuries of transmission, are things like, do not judge another until you have stood in their place. Right? Um, uh, um, be of the disciples of Aaron, seeking peace and pursuing peace. There are these like axioms, and of course his most famous one is, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? But if I'm only for myself, what am I? And if not now, when? So Hillel's like my guy. You know, and the fact that, the fact that he, he was not high-born, he rose on merit 
on whatever his, his spiritual and intellectual acumen was uh, to be the leader of the academy in the years before the, in the late first century BCE and created his descendants, the, the physical, the, the, uh, um, his children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, became, it became a, um, what hadn't been an inherited position before, became an inherited <laughs> position for the next 300 and some years. Uh, so Hillel's teachings inform the rabbinic uh, uh, un uh, uh, understanding of the world. And so, yes, he was a luminary. So it's entirely probable that Jesus was familiar with the teachings of Hillel uh, in his time. Um, again, we're speaking about Judea, right, and Galilee, which was an extension of it. Okay, so now, looking at this uh, parable, um, let's think about, in, re where the, in the verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Okay, we got the picture. Jerusalem is up at about 3,000 feet. Jericho is about 1,000 feet below sea level, down by the Dead Sea. So you definitely go down from Jerusalem to Jericho. It's about 15 miles. It's all just down all the way. Um, and... Uh, uh, so then, a priest happens to be going down the same road, and he walks right, he ignores the guy. Okay, so being a priest doesn't guarantee that you know what it means to love your neighbor, right? Uh, a Levite, you may not know about the ancient hierarchy of Israel. The priests are considered the ones who served in the sanctuary. The Levites were the servants at the temple who supported the priests. Everyone else were known as Israel, Israelites. So to this day in um, uh, more traditional synagogues than ours, because we aren't following this practice anymore, the first calling up to the Torah is always reserved for someone who has a priestly lineage. That means their name is Cohen. Right. Cohen means priest in Hebrew. Or it's variants, Kayan, Kagan, Kohan, you know, it's like there's a whole lot of Koenig, there's a whole, Katz is also a, the, Katz is an acronym, Kohen Tzadik, uh, Righteous Kohen. So anyway, I like Jewish last names. <laughs> I, I, I find it interesting. Um, we call the Kohen up first. So for 2,000 years, Jewish culture has remembered that the Kohens get special top treatment. The Levites in a traditional service, Arnie, are you a Le Le lady? Yes. Yeah, so anyone whose name was Levinsky or Levine or, but then also could be something that you came down through, uh, your name got changed. If you knew your father was a Levi, because this was patriarchal, then your grandfather was a Levi, then, so anyway, so you get called up to the Torah second. <coughs> then the third Aliyah is for anybody else, <laughs> known as Israel. The common folk, okay? That was the understanding. The rabble. Hmm? The, yeah, yeah, the rabble. The, so, in this one, now I've read, I was reading Marcus Borg, who I've been praising, and then I was reading Amy Jill Levine in the annotated uh, 
Jewish annotated New Testament. And it was fun to see how they disagree on how to interpret this. Uh, and I agree with Amy Jill Levine, because the, common, uh, the, the, more, the more common understanding that Borg puts out is that the priest and the Levite were concerned about ritual purity. Because in Judaism, if you have contact with the dead or contact with blood, you have to then take a ritual bath, a mikvah, in order to be restored to ritual purity. And, to, and in order to serve in the temple, you have to maintain ritual purity. So one of the common explanations is that Jesus is critiquing, which is a legitimate critique, I'm sure, uh, I'm not sure, but I can imagine, uh, the preoccupation with ritual purity as opposed to righteous action, right? Uh, getting confused about externals and internals. Uh, and that is, the, that, is the, that is Borg's explanation and many others, is that, well, the priest and the Levite are more concerned with ritual than with people. I could see why Jesus would critique. There, I'm sure that, was, that, that is an eternal problem of human beings, isn't it? thinking that we're doing it right if we get all the like, actions right and ignoring the, what we should be doing that's right in front of our nose, which is love your neighbors yourself. So it's a plausible explanation. The problem with the explanation is that, first of all, they're not going up to Jerusalem. They're going down to Jericho. So they're not on their way to work. Right? You follow what I'm saying? And second of all, the Jewish law is clear that to save a life, and you may not know this, you can abrogate any commandment. In order to save a life, this is rabbinic axiom, in order to save a life, you can override any other commandment about behavior. You, if, you're, if someone's starving on Yom Kippur, you give them food. Right? If someone's dying on uh, Shabbos, you get in the car and you take them to the emergency room and you do whatever you need to do to save their life. Do you follow what I'm, I'm saying? The same... So, the, so I would conclude that Borg, who I really am enjoying and who gets that Judaism has you know, got all of this in it, may have missed the boat on this one, um, uh, on his explanation, because it fits neatly into the, the paradigm of what Jesus would be critiquing, but the story itself doesn't seem to actually be saying that. Um, the question here is, who's your neighbor? That's the question. Um, and uh, are the priest and the Levite ignoring this person because of ritual purity? It doesn't appear to be that's the critique here. Now, he's critiquing these people from high places, but not for their preoccupation with ritual purity, but for not remembering who their neighbor is, perhaps. Uh, then, what uh, uh, the... What, the notes in the annotated, Jewish annotated New Testament point out is that if you're a first century Jew and Jesus is telling this story and you hear about a priest and then you hear about a Levite, who's going to be the next one? Israelite. Israelite. Yeah. It's like, what would be an example for us, right? You know, ABC. I mean, it's just like, and instead it's a Samaritan. This is the rub, okay? This is good storytelling. What, a Samaritan? What are you talking about? 
So then I got, went down the rabbit hole of who the Samaritans were. Yeah, and I got to tell you about it. <laughs> and we don't know for sure, but I think for, based on all the Argent, different Argent stories, I think we can come up with a rough picture. Okay. First of all, the, there are still Samaritans today. They still live at the base of their holy mountain in, outside of Nablus, Shechem, in the northern west bank in the mountains of Ephraim. Um, and they still live at their holy mountain, Mount Grizim. So I'm going to talk about that a little. There's only a small sect of them. The rest of them live in like Cholon or Chadera on the coast. Anyway, back, so the northern part of um, ancient Israel is referred to as Samaria. It's where the tribes of Ephraim, where, where a bunch of the northern tribes settled. And they had their own shrines. Now we're back. Everybody go back. Go back, like, uh, before King David. Like, the, as the 12 tribes are starting to formulate themselves into something called Israel, or the tribes of Israel. There are 10 northern tribes, and there's the southern tribe of Judah which is, and Benjamin, the southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin, which are focused around uh, what becomes Jerusalem and Hebron. The northern tribes are focused around Shechem, which has got its Greek name Nablus, uh, which has its own holy mountain called Mount Grizim. Um, and the northern tribes, it's clear if you read the book of King, the book of Joshua and the book of Judges and the book of Kings, this is a holy mountain. And they have their own shrines there. This is before Jewish worship and Jewish um, uh, government gets centered in Jerusalem. That's only King David who establishes. So this is how far back the Samaritans go. They are the people who lived in the northern mountains of uh, um, Israel. And um, when in this week's Torah portion, Jacob comes back from 20 years of serving his, his uncle Laban, crosses the river, uh, um, wrestles with the angel all night, gets his new name, Israel, and then you know where he goes? He goes to Shechem. That's what happens in the very next chapter. Uh, so Shechem was a holy place in ancient Israel. And uh, when the northern tribes... When the, so King David unifies all 12 tribes in a federation in around the year 1000 BC, BCE. It lasts one generation. After his son, King Solomon, uh, dies, they split into the northern kingdom of Israel, which was considered to be the 10 tribes, and the southern kingdom of Judah. When the and those tribes, those ten tribes are known in modern lingo as the ten lost tribes. Why are they called the ten lost tribes? In the year 722 BCE, um, Sennachari from where? Assyria at the time? Uh, invades, conquers the northern kingdom, destroys it, and fails to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah, with Jerusalem as its capital. So the ten northern tribes are deported, destroyed, their, their, their shrines are demolished, and uh, 
Judah survived. They become known as the 10 lost tribes. It may be that they weren't actually lost. It, 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 can, it can strongly be argued that the Samaritans are the descendants of some of those residents. Again, not to get too much into the weeds, but from my reading, uh, in the year 586 BCE, the southern kingdom is destroyed, and the Judeans are exiled to Babylon. They spend almost 100 years uh, there before Cyrus of Persia takes over and gives them permission to come back. So now here we are, say, in about the year in the 5th century BCE, like the 400s or something like that. They come back, this delegation of Judeans from Babylonia, to reestablish their city of Jerusalem in their province of Judea. And there are other people there who show up to help them and offer to help them build the walls of Jerusalem. These are the Samaritans. They're cousins. They study, they have, they, the Samaritans still have the Torah. Their Torah, the Samaritan Torah, is written in ancient Hebrew script. Not the Hebrew we see in here, but an earlier alphabet. They don't have rabbis. Rabbis weren't invented until, uh, until there was a Torah to interpret. Uh, uh, they have priests. And they think that, the Samaritan belief is that, Mount Grizim in Shechem is the mountain on which Isaac was offered by Abraham, is the holy mountain where God's presence dwells. They have their own, they have a competing story about where the holy places are. And they're cousins. And it seems that Ezra and the returning Jews from Babylonia want nothing to do with them. Uh, they said, no, 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 this is our project. And they reject the Samaritans. The Samaritans then write letters to Cyrus saying, hey, you know, they're not, it turns into this, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Civil war. No, 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 not a civil war, civil but like these two factions trying to get the, you know, trying to write to the emperor and say, no, it's us, it's us, no, no, we're the ones. This seems to be what's going on. But the Samaritans continue to be very much a part of the fabric of uh, Judean society. They, they are... The, there's, there's evidence that uh, Jews, uh, uh, Judeans and Samarians intermarried. They have so much in common about their acceptance of the Torah, of Moses, of the one God, but they don't agree about where the holy mountain is. <laughs> by, the, um, by the first century, the Samaritans were shunned by the rabbinic establishment, by the rabbis, the Samar and by the Judeans at large. They were considered, they were not considered to, they were being shunned, they were like hated, they were, they were there. The question though, now, which was so fascinating to me, is the word neighbor. Okay, so now we have to look at the word neighbor. <coughs> neighbor 
in Hebrew is re'ah. Re'ah um, is the word from ve'ahavta le're'acha kamocha, and it gets translated as neighbor. It means, depending on context, your someone who lives in your community. But most of all, what it means is someone who's part of your community. Someone who's part of your community. The opposite of a neighbor, in, so I would call that a citizen. The opposite of that is called the stranger. Now, when we hear love your neighbor as yourself, what do we think that applies to? Everybody. Everybody. Right? That's not what the Torah says. The Torah says, and uh, look at the page, the Good Samaritan page, down in the middle. In Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. I am Yodhei And our current, J- our Kumash translated, love your fellow Israelite as yourself, to make this distinction clear. Because... 15 verses later, in the same chapter, in verse 33 it says, when strangers reside with you in your land, you shall not wrong them. The strangers who reside with you shall be to you as your citizens. You shall love each one as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am Yodhei your God. So the Torah in this chapter about the holiness laws actually makes a distinction between your fellow Israelite and others, strangers, that means non-Israelites who live in your midst. Okay? So you can whip them, right? No. You didn't hear the quote. No. You, you didn't hear the quote. You shall, shall be to you as your citizens. You shall love each one as yourself. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt. No, this is radical. What's radical about it is that neighbor in ancient in in in, in this, this ancient Jewish understanding is your fellow citizen. Stranger is the resident alien, who is a not an Israelite. They both have to be treated as you want to be treated yourself. Okay, that's the fundamental humanism of the Bible. They're different categories of people. They this is not a universe. This is universalism wasn't even dreamed of at this time. So you had to explicitly state the categories. And in fact, the invocation that you were strangers in the land of Egypt, which, as many of you know, is repeated more than any other uh, commandment in the Torah about how to treat the stranger, in my opinion, is invoked because it's the last thing we feel like doing. Right? You know you want to... Sure, the person in your community, that's... You, you, you know, you scratch their back, they'll scratch you. A good friend, you know... They'll scratch those. But the stranger, they have no legal recourse. They don't belong to your uh, clan. They're not, why would, you, why would you bother? Because everyone's made in the image of God. These are the fundamental principles of the Torah, echoed in the same idea of, of uh, Rabbi Akiva or Jesus saying, this is the entire thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. Um, but specifically, and this was the insight that I gained from, from these beautiful commentaries, is the Samaritan a Judean's neighbor, kinsman, right? He's shunned. He's hated. 
And for a first century Jew, he's part of your, he, he's part of the covenant, right? He has the same Torah. So the Samaritan is not just anybody. The Samaritan is the, your neighbor who you despise. So then the whole story just like explodes in my mind. Who is Jesus? Jesus is talking to people. When you hear Samaritan, you go, oh, them. Uh Right? But they're not Gentiles. They're not foreigners. They are cousins. Right? So uh, that was an amazing thing to realize. Um, Um, so it's a Samaritan who shows up and takes pity and treats him the way he's supposed to be treated and which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers the expert in the law replied the one who had mercy on him go and do likewise Jesus told him so this isn't a story about it turns, it appears, it's not a story about uh, um, the the man man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho um, uh, is an Israelite. He's a neighbor. He's part of the clan. And uh, the priest and the Levite ignore him, but the Samaritan, who they would never give the time of day to, is also their fellow citizen and behaves in the right way. Um, so that was one of the things that I wanted to share with you. Yes, Angie? It's interesting that he doesn't say Roman instead of Samaritan. If he said a Roman, that... The citizenship. Oh, well, I'm using the word citizen as a a term we would understand. A member of your societal collective. But, but, I mean, that would remove it even more. Uh, No, on the contrary. This is the point. A Roman is considered an alien, a strange... The word ger means alien. Uh, and, the, and it also refers to Gentiles who are non-Jews, right? Um, he, he, it seems that Jesus is talking to a Jewish audience and talking about the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself in the context of there's a separate commandment about to love your stranger as yourself. Right? So we have to crank ourselves around and recognize that when Jesus is talking about neighbor, Jesus is not talking about we're all neighbors. <laughs> right? No. Jesus is talking about the members of your, of your in-group. That's who a neighbor is. And the members of your in-group are the, the, are the Jews. And he's speaking to Jews about Jews. And Samaritans are... are, are, are are they Jewish? It's not 100% clear, but it appears that uh, they're still around and they have their own scriptures and their own history, which tells, as you might imagine, since we both survived, uh, different versions of the same story about basically who was wrong. Um, uh, but this is what I was trying to get, a, I'm trying to get across. It's like Jesus is a Jewish teacher speaking to a student of the Torah and choosing a category, Samaritan that in the first century was very meaningful. The Samaritans, even though their name appears to come from the area, Shomriah, where they're from, they call themselves Shamerim, 
which means guardians or protectors of the law. They have their own understanding of that they're doing, they're doing it right. So, uh, so that blew me away when I realized that our idea of Samaritan is this disembodied sort of, what's a Samaritan? Uh, for a Jewish audience, listening to this story from a Jewish teacher is very pointed. The neighbor you hate is, and I mean neighbor in a technical way, right? I mean technically neighbor, kins, kinsman. Let's use the word kinsman. Um, the kinsman that you hate and that you think shouldn't be here is the one who's actually fulfilling the commandment. Now you go do that, right? So that's a teaching for Jews to Jews. Okay, let's hear your thoughts. Ronnie? Uh, I'm wondering what is the actual difference in belief between the Samaritans and the Jews? It appears to be um, where the holy center of their <laughs> tradition should be. Jerusalem or Mount Grizim, which is in the north in Nablus and Shechem. Um, the other thing is that the Samaritans, therefore, never accept the authority of the rabbis to interpret the Torah. The Samaritans and the Jews both share the same Torah, but the Samaritans do not accept the, the, the rabbinic interpretation of the Torah, which is what we're, we Jews are the inheritors of. So what do they believe? I, would, I, can't, I don't know enough yet. Okay. Um, go I, home and study. I, go and study. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Ryan. <laughs> Please. One of the things, there's a lot that strikes me in here, but one of the things is that if you are mistreated, okay, you have a number of choices about how you behave as an adult. You can either carry on that abuse and mistreatment or you can turn it around and say, okay, I'm never going to do that to anybody. So the Samaritan who was shunned and mistreated is coming from this place of being shunned and mistreated and is really not doing what is hateful to somebody else. So it's, it's a kind of a, a turnaround about, you know, you're growing up and you get treated the way you don't like, you could say, okay, I'm never going to be that kind of a parent. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, you know, like, be violent and horrible. So I was just struck by the fact that the Samaritan, who has been mistreated, if the story is correct, has made some kind of a decision to follow the law instead of the upbringing. Yes, the Samaritan is showing exactly the character that a true kinsperson should show, despite how they've been treated. And the Samaritans are viewed as enemies by, uh, you know, they, not, not military enemies, but like, you know, uh, uh, competitors, seriously. Uh, let's see, I'll get a few hands, and then I'm going to dig into that a little deeper. Thank you, Blaze. Uh, yes, what's your name? I forgot. Marsha. 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 Um, I mean, when you said, Rabbi, that, that, that the Samaritans did not believe in following the rabbis, or the, you know, that they, almost I'm hearing you say they have a more direct contact, maybe, with God. Um, but but be so, that was It's not more point. direct. They have their own interpretation. But, but I could see how that, um, 
you know, if the rabbis felt they weren't needed, they weren't, you know, they weren't looked up to as the interpreters, I could see how they could fan this kind of, uh, you know, hatred or disdain or exclusion. So I could see how that might happen. Mm -hmm. There seemed, I can't, I, I haven't studied it deeply enough to, and there are, to, to say this was the breaking point or this was the reason this happened. Or, but what I do know, again, I'll peel away the layers. I'll, I'll call on you soon. <coughs> peel away the layers. Rabbinic Judaism, the Judaism that we know of as Judaism, has been predominant for over a thousand years. But in the first century, there were competing sects of Judaism, remember? The, the rabbis, the Pharisees, were not the dominant sect. They were one sect. They were competing for what is the right way to serve God, right? What is, and, and of course, I don't mean that in a selfless way, because uh, politics and theology yeah. and religious practice were all mushed together there, right? Nationalism and so, and nationalism and, and uh, theology, and it, so this, those, Nobody was teasing those apart until the very modern times. Um, so what I'm saying is that in the first century, it wasn't that the Samaritans were dissenters from the rabbinic consensus. There wasn't a consensus. We only read a consensus because the rabbis lasted and eventually established predominance. Uh, but there were, if you recall, the Sadducees, the Essenes, the Zealots, the Samaritans can qualify as another sect, and then the followers of Jesus, the early Jesus way, and who knows how many others. Remember hearing about John the Baptist John last Baptist. time, right? The John the Baptist movement, his followers. And that doesn't mean that there were hard and fast boundaries between these parties. Because you remember reading, a, who, let's see, Matthew brought to us about oh, Josephus going and studying with the Essenes, and then studying with the rabbis, and then following the... And, like, imagine a much more fluid, decentralized, uh, and uh, impassioned uh, struggle going on at this time. And so uh, uh, we only feel like the rabbinic view is the view because it lasted and we inherited it. But if, again, if we try to use our historical imagination to put ourselves back in the scene, um, uh, then... Um, uh, the Samaritans don't accept the rabbinic view. The Sadducees didn't either. Okay, more hands. Uh, Carol, Avis, Shana. So, um, I seem to remember, and I don't know if it was... Gandhi. Talk a little louder. I seem to remember something, maybe it was Gandhi, that said if you can't do something good, at least don't do any harm. Kind of, yeah. kind of thing. Um, and it struck me, you know, in... I don't know how it is in Judaism necessarily, but I know in Christianity there are different kinds of sins. Like there's original sin, there's mortal sin, there's venial sin, and there's something called sins of sins of omission, where not doing something that that would be helpful is, is actually considered a sin. Um, so this. Okay, good. I know where you're going. Okay. And uh, hold on to that, because we're going to turn the page over and find that in a moment. Okay. Avis. As I read this um, uh, verse about going, you know, that we're studying now, it reminds me of what we were talking about last week, and that Jesus would 
take meals with the tax collector and the prostitute, which I hate that word. Yeah. Well, we yeah. talked about that last time, yeah. that prostitutes so saying, made a trash women who were uh, independent. But a continuation. I think this is a continuation of going back to that simple, very um, understandable relationship between people and that this, this separation of the priests, etc., cannot exist in the sight of Jesus because it doesn't put people on that equal footing. Right. Love your neighbor as yourself. It doesn't mean the neighbor you like or the neighbor who uh, um, can pay you back for the loan. Right? It's your kinsman. And that's Jesus speaking to the Jewish people of his, of the, in the province of Judea or in Galilee is saying, uh, you know, remember your neighbor. That's your neighbor too. That neighbor that you think is uh, as, as really trafe, is really off limits is still your fellow kinsman, and you have to treat them that way. But if this is almost a forewarning that the, that that power can't continue, that that force at that upper level, it, it's not good in the sight of Jesus, in his eyes, that it cannot go on because it's not humanitarian, so to speak. That's right. So if we can, again, uh, the challenge that I face is to see is to receive the words of Jesus as a Jewish teacher. That's what I'm working on with us right now, right? And he was not a solitary Jewish teacher. That's why I brought all these contextualizing teachings. He's part of the most humanizing trend, one might say, of these Jewish teachers. Um, but as, and, and a lot of us, and again, I'm just getting started with Jesus, but he's pretty radical often. He's, he's really, really out there. Uh, and so I can't make big generalizations yet, but I can say that the context is not, he, Jesus is not, um, he's, he's in context of, of, in, of, of getting to the heart of Jewish teaching. That's what I want to say. There were more hands. Uh, Shana. Um, maybe this is a seg. I was thinking as you spoke about the different factions of, of Jews in, in the Middle East, in, in Israel, um, back then, that it's not so different from that, the way things are now. We have reform, we have conservative, we have renewal, we have uh, reconstructionists, we have um, from these. How many different kinds of Jews there are today? And we're, right. all, we're all Jews. Um, we have very different political views often. Right. Um, but we're all grounded in Torah. So in a way, this whole, this whole scenario has just evolved. Oh, yes. And this, we're still the same. There's, it, it's, yes, yes. Plus et chance, and the more things stay the same. It's like, but our categories are different. The category, they, we have an understanding, we have different categories of who's in and who's out, but this problem remains, absolutely, and the challenge. Hattie and then Gary and then uh, Patricia and then Gary. Yeah. I don't know if this is like a, a, a place to go with this, but I, I've been thinking about it, which is, um, we don't know anything about the man who was attacked 
We don't know anything about the man who was attacked. That's fascinating. But he was rescued by Samaritan. Right. And so my mind went off in this like almost useless place because we know nothing. Who was he? He found out that a Samaritan had rescued him. So I've been kind of, that's like kind of this sort of shadow in the background of this story to me. I want to say something. Uh, I want to add to that. So wouldn't that be beautiful if Hattie wrote the story of <laughs> the man after his recovery and yeah, how yeah. this act of kindness from someone who is a despised yeah. um, transforms them. Yes, write that story. Also, another thing that... And I just want to say, Hattie, that, that in the Jewish tradition, that form of expanding on the text is known as midrash, or hermeneutics, you know, or the expansion. What's the backstory? What can we learn from this? Let's tell a story about the story. I'm sure that exists in other traditions just as well. And one, one more quick thing about that was, uh, because my mind works this way, He's, it says he put the man on his own donkey. Sounds significant, doesn't it? He put the man on his own donkey. And then, of course, I think the donkey. What would he have done if he didn't have a donkey with him? How would oh, if the Samaritan been? hadn't had a donkey. This is more to add to this, telling the story. Good. The Good. <laughs> Thank you. But I also think that we have to keep in mind that animals like the dog, we've glossed over him completely, and I think he has an important role in this. Thank you. Thank you, Patricia, and then Gary, and then I want to take it to the next, oh, and then Arnie, and then to the next thing. Yes? Just this historical clarification, I just want to know if this is what I thought happened. It's historical so, clarification. So the Samaritans can drive, that happens. They wait, 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 I'm having trouble hearing. Go ahead. We've never heard from them again, the ten lost tribes. Then Judea gets taken over and everybody has to move to Babylon, the higher Not everybody, the leadership. The, the leadership gets deported. It's, and so it used to be that there was um, ritual, you know, sacrifices and all that in Jerusalem, but also up in, in, all, in different places. Am I right? Uh, right. Uh, the goal of the Torah, when you read Deuteronomy, is that worship and practice are centralized in Jerusalem. There's an effort to centralize practice. But then when you read the texts about those times, you hear about altars and sacred groves and sacrifices all over the place and constant efforts to centralize worship. We know for a fact that the, uh, I mean, this is still happening. Every year the Samaritans celebrate Passover. What do they do? They follow the Torah. This is about a thousand people now. That's who are, who are Samaritans. They follow the Torah. They take a lamb. They go to their holy mountain, which is Mount Grizim, and they have a family. They sacrifice it, each one a lamb for each family, just as it says in the Torah. No Passover seders. That's all rabbinic. No Haggadahs. No four cups of wine. That's all rabbinic interpretation. They follow the Torah, and they're doing it at their holy mountain. Has anyone ever been to it? 
I've never been, but some Passover, when I'm in Israel, I want to go to Mount Grizim and watch them do their Passover ritual. I think so. So, so then, everybody goes to Babylon, and that, is this true? That, that in that place, they get the idea of reading the Torah on Thursday and Shabbat and Monday or something, right? And that in the marketplace, and everyone can hear it, and that idea, and that's where the rabbinical idea came from. Our best, well, we don't know the facts. We have a reasonable guess. The reasonable guess is that when the Jewish priesthood and leadership are deported from Jerusalem to Babylon, in order to survive as a coherent community in exile, they start to codify the texts, write them down, maintain them. Before that, it was probably a much more fluid and oral tradition. This is the best guess of, of, of uh, contemporary <coughs> scholarship. Uh, and there's pretty much consensus on this, as a, as, but again. Right. So, so that, and why we think that is that the first time we ever hear about the Torah being read in public is when Ezra and the leadership return to Jerusalem and stand in the town square and read the Torah, and it says, and interpreted it for the people. Right? So perhaps the, 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 the physical Torah scroll, the, 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 the written, you know, fixed document, emerges out of the Babylonian exile, presumably as an effort for continuity and cultural survival, and then comes back. And now we have this category of scribes and Pharisees, scribes and rabbis, whose job is to now maintain these sacred texts. But, but when they come back and they do all that, are that they're, they're building the temple again and mm -hmm. sacrificing again there, sort of based on what they remember. And right, it hadn't been that long. Okay. Hadn't been that That's long. And they were able to reestablish so the... the rabbis started around then. It seems the rabbis start around then interpreting this written text. And I have one more question. Yeah. The little synagogues that are around, that you go back and the synagogues don't start to take shape until, oh, maybe the first century BCE. And a synagogue simply means in Greek or in Hebrew, a gathering place. Okay. They were like community centers yeah. for, far, for Jewish communities but that were... Nobody was doing sacrifices. They were not doing <coughs> sacrifices anymore. But the Samaritans, they, did. they were they still doing their sacrifices up north. The other guys came yeah. back and did it again. Yeah, sorry. Okay. Sorry, thank you so much. Yes. Gary. Rabbi, I've been working with an idea for the last question for the last hour or so, thinking that maybe I would formulate it clearly in my mind before the end of this section. I won't be able to, so I'm just going to throw this out. Okay. Quickly. A, a fundamental contract, concept for this class, I think, is to help bridge the divide between two communities that have had some conflict. Uh, yes, by hopefully examining our fun, our, our, our foundational so texts. Forgive me. So an hour ago, this gentleman said, look in the Farmer's Almanac, and you'll see that 10, 11 religions all say the same thing about love thy neighbor. Yeah. Stuff. Okay. So I'm asking, I'm suggesting that one of the fundamental characteristics of the Jewish identity, I believe, is that the Jewish community believes in the Torah is found an intersection of the intellectual and the spiritual in a way that is found no place else. Okay, if that's true, 
I'm wondering if in this common point of commonality, if the specialness, uniqueness of the Jewish identity loses its luster or reaches its apotheosis. Because it joins most the thinking of all of you. Thank you. The reason I'm not going to respond to that question uh, with any attempt at an answer is because I don't think that we are unique. Uh, any more than many other cultures have their own uniqueness. So that's not my framework. I don't have a meta picture of the Torah, the Bible, the Jews, or the Christians being like having something, some special mojo that never arose anywhere else in the world. So that's why I can't really address that kind of meta question because it's not the field I'm playing in. I'm happy to talk about it more another time. Okay, so now, turn the page over. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 19 is known in the Jewish tradition as the Holiness Code because it begins, speak to the whole community, the children of Israel, and say to them, you shall be holy, for I, Yodhei your God, am holy. Okay, now also, when they stand on Mount Sinai before the Ten Commandments, you shall be to me a nation of priests and a holy people if you fulfill these commandments. Right? So this idea of being a holy people, and I'm a goy kadosh, is central to the Jewish understanding, that there is something special about us. That's our self-understanding. And uh, uh, to the degree that that motors me to want to be a beacon of righteousness and a light to the nations, I accept it. To the degree that it makes me feel like I'm more special than the rest of humanity, I reject it. Okay? Um, and... Uh, and the way, just to say another tiny bit about that, at Mount Sinai, it's so conditional. God says, if you fulfill these commandments, you will be a nation of priests and a holy people. So it's not about our, uh, something essential to us, and we certainly uh, uh, are a work in progress. Um, okay, so hol these holiness laws in ancient and contemporary Jewish understanding, are considered on par with the Ten Commandments. Right? They don't get the same pride of place as the Ten Commandments display, but we read in rabbinic literature, in, in Deuteronomy it says, every seventh year you shall assemble all the people, hakel, it's called, and it's understood in the rabbinic tradition that at that every seven-year assembly, this is the passage that was read. That's how central it was to. So, if you know that this, these passage, this passage is central, you'll know that it's central to Jesus and to his listeners. Okay? And what does it say? A lot of it recapitulates the Ten Commandments. We're going we're gonna, to uh, go quickly through the top and then focus on the latter verses. Verse 3, you shall each revere your mother and your father and keep my Sabbaths. I am Yudhei your God. Do not turn to idols or make molten gods for yourselves. I am Yudhei your God. Uh, then this is, let's even for the sake of time, let's skip 5, 6, 7, and 8 and go to verse 9 because this is about how to offer a sacrifice. Verse 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap all the way to the edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. 
You shall not pick your vineyard bare or gather the fallen fruit of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am your God. Okay, what's that mean? There are no food banks in ancient Israel. No supermarkets, no. Right. There's your field. If you're not a landowner, you're a day laborer. Or worse. And uh, you have no way to store grain for the winter. So the commandment was, you leave the corners of your field untrimmed you leave for the poor and the stranger. Gleaning. You shall not steal. You shall not deal deceitfully or falsely with one another. You shall not swear falsely by my name, profaning the name of your God. I am your Hevafe. You shall not defraud your neighbor. You shall not commit robbery. The wages of a laborer shall not remain with you until morning. Again, this is a day laborer. So they, they have to go by. They, they, they don't have any money. They're, they're living hand to mouth. Then you shall not insult the deaf or place a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear your God. I am your Hebafe. You shall not pervert justice. Do not favor the poor or show deference to the rich. Judge your kin with fairness. You shall not spread slander among your people. Do not stand by while your neighbor's blood is shed. I am yod hei You shall not hate your kinsfolk in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor, or else you will bear some of their guilt. In other words, if you don't interrupt a, a sin or crime in action, you're partially responsible. No innocent bystanders. And then it says, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against members of your people. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am your faithful. Incredible passage, isn't it? Wow. <coughs> I'm, I'm, it's incredible. And there's a few things I want to point out to you. Jesus and his listeners all knew these verses. So when they said, love your neighbors yourself, this is the passage in the background. Not for us, because we haven't been students of Torah our whole life. But for them, this was it. There, there was no daily paper. There was no Shakespeare. It was, it's like, this is it. This is, this, is the, this is the text we study. And we learn it by heart. So, the Samaritan. Look at this. Now, this, look at the story we just read in the context of this. Do not stand by while your neighbor's blood is being shed. Lo ta'amod al-damriecha. So to love your neighbors yourself means if that guy's at the side of the road, it's two verses right before this. You have to step over there. You have to do it. Or else you're not fulfilling the commandment. If it says... Um, uh, oh, there was another one that just jumped out at me. Um, do not favor the poor or show deference to the rich. Uh, and... Um, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against members of your people. Again, the Samaritan, the biggest grudge match, goes back hundreds of years. That's why he's bringing the Samaritan into this mix. So it's the Samaritan who is not taking vengeance or bearing a grudge, who you all listeners, Samaritan, you know, we're not having anything to do with that, that guy. Um, so it says in Matthew... Uh, in another speech by Jesus I'll just read this to you I didn't give it to you um, 
if any of you put a stumbling block. Oh, this is the one about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and uh, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven unless you become humble like a child. Uh, and if any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones who believe in me, uh, it would be better for you if a great millstone were fastened around your neck and you were drowned in the depths of the sea. <laughs> woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Occasions for stumbling are bound to come, but woe to the one by whom the stumbling block comes. <clears throat> put a stumbling block before the blind. In Jewish tradition of this time, is, is understood figuratively. Jesus is right in the center of the Jewish understanding of this commandment. What's it mean, a stumbling block before the blind? I mean, obviously, it means don't, you know, if someone's blind, you put a stumbling, that's the commandment? Come on. In this, in this love your neighbor as yourself, exalt. So for the rabbis, stumbling block before the blind has to be figurative. And they interpret it as if somebody is, um, oh, I don't know, I've read many content, like offering a cigarette to someone who's trying to quit. You know, um, uh, somebody who's trying to go straight, giving them a, uh, a chance to do just one more job. You know, it's like all of that is putting a stumbling block before the blind. That's good. And uh, that's how the rabbinic tradition understands it. So Jesus says here uh, that anyone who puts a stumbling block that's what he's referring to. He's quoting this passage because then in the next passage he says, and if another member of the church, uh, and in the Greek it's if your brother, okay, if your kinsman. <laughs> so the translation from the Greek is a member of the church in this translation. There were no churches when Jesus was talking. right? So this is a retrojection by the gospel writer. The Greek is your brother. Your brother is what I've been translating as your kin, because I did gender-neutral gender translations here. It's always your brother. Achicha. It's always your brother in the original text, because it was a gendered language, and uh, it's like mankind. I mean, we've only stopped saying mankind, some of us, in the last 40 years, right? So I'm just telling you, it's like your brother, Achicha, I translate as your kin, or a member of your people. But the Hebrew and the Greek and the English, it's all your brother. Okay, so if another member of your church, which is if your kin sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If they listen to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses, if the brother refuses to listen to them, tell the whole community. Um, and if the offender refuses to listen even to the whole community, then that one will be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, well, okay. This is a specific category. What would a Gentile be? Someone who's not. A stranger. Not a stranger. Someone who's not part of your kin, right? What would a tax collector be? Someone in the th thinking of that time. Now, Jesus is reaching out to tax collectors, but in this speech, he's using a rabbinic phrase, Gentile or tax collector, to be an Israelite who has, through their behavior, made themselves uh, 
uh, odious, unworthy to be considered kin. And you consider still to be loved as yourself? I'm in a different passage here. <laughs> so hold on. I'm pointing something else out, and then we can answer that. Okay. Um, remember, if, you're, if you are to be, as a Gentile or a tax collector, you are no longer in the category of neighbor. You're in the category of stranger. stranger right. So there's another category, yeah. but they're not us. Right. Because love your neighbors yourself is not a universal in this understanding. There's an additional explanation for how you're supposed to treat everyone else well also. But in the covenantal community, to be like a Gentile or a tax collector means you've been shunned. Right? Why was this person shunned? Because they wouldn't respond to the first attempt at rebuke, the second attempt with witnesses, and the third attempt with the entire community. If they don't change their ways, they're not someone who is considered. And now we're getting into, I was studying this this week. It's just been such a, I've had such some time with this. It's really great. Um, there are all kinds of rules in the Talmud, meaning basically contemporaneous, about who can serve as a witness or a judge in internal legal matters. Here are some people, categories that cannot serve. Tax collectors, um, uh, at first they thought that they collected no more than the legally imposed tax. But when it was seen that they were overcharged, that they were they overcharged, they were disqualified. So if you were if you were um, uh, uh, extorting the public of the community, then you were considered out by the rabbis, not a valid witness or judge. Oh, they have a lot of other categories here, too. Um, let's see. Uh, people who play dice. Uh, uh, someone who lends on interest, a usurer. Why? Because it says you must not lend money. In Deuteronomy, you must not lend money to your kinsfolk with interest. Give them what they need. Open, open your hand. Right? Now, in the first century, and this will get to some of the things we were talking about last time, a lot, of, a lot of these laws were under great, great pressure because Judea was no longer a sort of local um, uh, agricultural society. Um, also, those who deal in, uh, sell the produce of the sabbatical year. So now a little excursion. We're under the pressure of Roman cosmopolitanism. There's there, there, uh, uh, there's a, there's a um, money economy that's developed. There's an uh, international trade. If you follow the sabbatical year, which means that you let the land rest every seventh year, then you lose all your international trade. The, if you were making wine, and you had a big wine exporting business, I was reading about wine in the Roman Empire. It's like incredibly extensive international huge industry. Uh, if you let your land rest as was commanded, you, you'd lose a whole... It's one thing if you were a, a local agricultural subsistence economy, which was what it was when these laws were written. But by the time of the Roman Empire, how could you subsist? Hillel is famous for passing a variety of ordinances that bald-facedly contradict the Torah. And he said the times demanded. Wow. Um, uh, he, he creates rules where you can lend at interest. He creates 
ways to get around the sabbatical year because the economy, because the need to survive economically. So, but the rabbis in the meantime are still trying to maintain the integrity of their community. And so they're saying, if you do this, you're out. If you do this, you're out. So I can just picture, again, a reasonable historical guess of the kind of economic and social pressures that this little community was under as it tried to retain its, uh, its moral and legal coherence in the face of inexorable economic change and pressures, right? Um, so guitar players out of the loop? Guitar players? Let's see. <laughs> However, shepherds were, dis- were not disqualified at first because it was assumed that they were only accidentally letting their animals graze in fields of others. But when it was realized that they were intentionally sending their animals onto other fields, they were out. It's like, they're trying, they're trying. Uh, the Gemara relates a story about a tax collector. And this is how the Gemara works. It does this and then it tells a story. The father of Rabbi Zerah collected taxes for 13 years. Uh, when the head tax collector of the river region would come to the city, Rabbi Zerah's father would prepare the residents ahead of time and say to them, come my people, Hide, the do- hide and shut your doors. Hide yourself until, the, until the, the authorities have passed by. He said this so that the head tax collector would not see them and it would be possible to lower the taxes of the city. This is a very beautiful snapshot, isn't it? Uh, what? Oh, this is from the Talmud. This is from um, uh, the tract. I, I didn't write the citation down. So it's a later story collected maybe in the 4th or 5th century we don't know how old the actual story is or whether it's even true, but it's there to illustrate a point. The point is, um, uh, when he would see the ordinary people of the city, he would say to them, beware, if the head to la- tax collector comes to the city, uh, uh, everyone would hide. When the, tag- head ta- like the, when the head tax collector would arrive, Rabbi Zeir's father would say to him, from whom shall I request taxes? There's nobody here. Uh, and when he was dying, this same man said, take these, this sack of money that's tied up in my sheet and return them to so-and-so. Uh, I took them from him, but I did not need them to pay the tax. I had enough. And then the moral of the story is some tax collectors are God-fearing and should not be disqualified. Right? So this is a typical discussion, but I'm not sharing with you to... Uh, I'm giving you a picture. If, if he was compared to a tax collector or a Gentile for not rebuking his neighbor. So loving your neighbor as yourself includes... Oh, I just wondered what that sound was. <laughs> loving your neighbor as yourself is the activity of these previous verses. And rabbinic Judaism, along with Jesus, is very clear that there has that you it's your requirement to try to interrupt the sinful behavior. Right. Otherwise, you're not loving your neighbor. As I want to skip that. What? No, I just want to know. So I'm just a little confused. Who who said these? Leviticus chapter 19. Uh, it's in the third book of the Torah, and it's Moses. It's central. It's not only it's it's where the love your neighbor as yourself comes from. If you look at verse 18, love your neighbor as yourself. This is from the Torah. And this, 
these laws, known as the holiness laws, are considered in rabbinic tradition to be as important as the Ten Commandments, so much so that you would anticipate any knowledgeable Jew knowing these. Therefore, if Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself, love your neighbor as yourself is not a, a um, saccharine or a uh, generalization. It's about how you're supposed to treat your fellow Israelites. And this is how, including, it, do not stand idly by when their blood is being shed. Whistleblower. Whistleblower, absolutely. <coughs> whistleblowing is, is, a, is rebuking, whistleblowing, interrupting, uh, wrongdoing, with, is a sign of loving behavior. Right on. Okay, so once again, this is not anemic stuff. As Martin Luther King liked to say, we've gotten all confused about love and power. It's like we've got to understand that love is justice in the service of, uh, uh, you know, is power in the service of love. That's justice. So, uh, um, so again, we started with love your neighbor as yourself as this disembodied <coughs> idea that... It's crucial, right? It's the golden rule. But to understand a parable from the first century that Jesus is telling, you have to know this stuff. This is a Jewish teacher. Now we know it's a Samaritan. We know it's someone lying by the side of the road. To love your neighbors yourself, you cannot pass that person by. Um, we know that um, you can't hate your kinsfolk in your heart. And rather... If you, and what that talks about, because these, these are connected, it's not hate them in your heart. It's, you can't say, look at that jerk and not try to help them, hmm. not try to interrupt their behavior. You can't say that. It says, you shall not hate your kinsfolk in your heart. You must rebuke your neighbor, or else you bear some of their guilt. Um, uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel said, uh, some are guilty, all are responsible. So I'm pointing that out to you because now read the story. I mean, it's like Jesus, elsewhere I was reading in Matthew, Jesus quotes the holiness laws, stumbling blocks, rebuke your neighbor. It's like we all, his listeners all know this stuff. And these are the most challenging damn commandments, right? It's not just about love. It's about stepping out of your comfort zone all the time. And that's what the Samaritan does. Not just the Israelite, the Samaritan, the one you don't even want to treat as kin. Now, I'm listening to the story, trying to, in a different way, if you follow what I'm saying. Uh, Joan? So I'm just going back to the parable of the Good Samaritan for a second. Maybe it's not important, or maybe it has some meaning. Why the priest and the Levite disobeyed the commandment that's core? Right? Yeah. To their what is their problem? <laughs> I mean, that's their path, and they're disregarding. Them. Yeah, maybe they were on their way to a reception or something. <laughs> you know? No, no, but their core path says that's your first priority. Right, and how many of our uh, uh, people devoted to their religious practice and even religious leaders? Mm. I, I mean, Joan, you sent me that uh, yeah. that uh, article today. Uh, 
Okay. <clears throat> yeah. the, the examples are legion. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> who think they're fulfilling their religious requirements and uh, are completely preoccupied with form and not substance. Maybe this is just a way that Jesus is making that point that just because you're this or just because you're that doesn't Yeah, the priest and the Levite and then the Samaritan is the one who comes through. And the Samaritan is a somebody, a social status that we don't know about unless we read. Uh, they're a kinsman who is, uh, who is shunned and despised. Yes? Um, I always had a sense that the people that Jesus, um, that who followed Jesus were largely uneducated people, uh, poorer people, maybe illiterate people. I mean, some, of course, that's not totally true, but this is the kind of general sense I got from what I learned. So I wonder, would these people know about these writings? Yes. Yes. Uh, very few people were literate, but there was comp... Not everyone necessarily even knew the entire scriptures, but there were sections of scripture that were understood. They were called, I was looking this up, they were called like testamentia or something like that, that were understood to be like, oh, the Reader's Digest, the greatest hits, the, and that's what was out there in the environment, and that's what Jesus is riffing off of for his listeners, because it's the pieces they know best. Um, and I think, and we'd have to see what other people's opinion about this is who know way more than I do, uh, that the idea that Jesus' was followers were mostly the poor or mostly, there's a reason to make that assumption given that he reached out to people who were not being uh, included. But I would guess he also had m other followers as well who could like bankroll his uh, uh, feasts and who could, you know, just like everybody gets benefactors. Uh, so I don't know if that's true, but clearly his ministry was to uh, 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 say, hey, they're part of us too. And the us I've been trying to uh, describe to you, the us is very specific. Jesus is, not Jesus is not redefining neighbor, which means kinsman. Jesus is speaking directly as a Jew to Judeans and the categories that... Uh, were understood at that time, and making some. In, I think the points get. The, <coughs> what I wanted to share is, I think the points get more powerful when they're put in C two, when they're put in their context, rather than less so. Um, that's why I was so fascinated studying this, Susan. Um, now that and then two more, and then it'll be time to stop. Now that we've heard a lot. Here's the way I think I'm now going to read this. Um, that so the expert in the law was kind of challenging Jesus, and it wasn't a genuine question he was asking. He was a little bit trying to justify himself. And, and now Jesus tells this parable, and it, of course what you said is true, but I have a feeling that Jesus' motivation there <coughs> was to put that expert in the law, who is presumably one of the high people, um, in a bad light. Just, in other words, rebuke. <coughs> Pushing back at him. He'd right. been dissed. Pushing back. So many ancient wisdom stories are like that. Um, that's why I have the Hillel story down here below. Uh, somebody comes to Hillel to get his goat, and Hillel says, uh, in your face. Uh, so this kind of repartee is, I think, very much part of uh, uh, spiritual teaching, right? Uh, spiritual teachers aren't always nice. 
<laughs> right? They'll get right in your face. Uh, and um, uh, that's could, in order to teach a lesson. I think a lot of Jesus' parables are very uh, in your face in that way. Um, let's see, we're almost out of time. Arnie, I'll get to you in a second, Ronnie. The parable speaks to me uh, about the conflict between spirituality and religion uh, and, and ritual. Can, this is my feeling about it. Okay. The priest sees this man by the road and he's almost dead. Well, maybe he is dead. I'm not going to go touch that person because that will make me ritually impure. And the Levite, who is the uh, servant of, of the priest, is of the same mind. He might become ritually impure by, by touching uh, this, this, this. I understand. But there's a remedy to that. But, but the Samaritan <laughs> is not concerned with ritual. He's concerned with spirituality. Uh, thank you, Arnie. Thank you. That's a good uh, one. Yes. Can I just say, I think what's really striking me, you know, the shunning of the Samaritan and just the power of group think. The you power know, of group, group think, think, shunning the Samaritan. That is so distorted. You know, we see it, you know, we see it today. It's just it's just like, oh my God, that yeah. the, the person that does right is shunned. Oh my God. Yep, yeah. that's, that's Jesus' point. Uh, I'm going to get Ronnie's comment, then I have a couple of closing, closing remarks and we'll wrap up. Okay, I was just thinking that the parable uh, about the, the, the Levite and the priest and the Samaritan is be and we're not taking it further. Someone questioned what happened to the guy, you know, afterwards. I think the parable ends before that. The parable was me merely to make the point that you have to take care of people yeah. in general. And it wasn't really specifically about the victim of this terrible abuse. Thank you. Well, the victim is unnamed. We know nothing about this person. Yeah, so he's every, every person, every man. So I wanted to share one more tidbit from uh, um, the annotated New Testament that really, again, puts it in Jewish context. That's my purpose in the way I've been studying it. Um, and it says, at the beginning of the parable, on one occasion, an expert in the law, in the Torah, stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Okay, now, this one, this note just blew me away. That's a very specific question. When you are a student of, a Jewish student of Torah, you read the Torah. The Torah, as many of you may know, the ancient Torah has no vowels in it. There, the, the Torah scroll is written in a form without vocalization, no vowels, which means you can look at the same words, and this is the, one of the rabbinic forms of interpretation, the same letters, and get different meanings depending on how you vocalize it. Uh, do you follow what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I hope you do. It's complicated, but it's really important. Um, so we're still doing this to this day. This is one of the keys of Torah study. This is the word of God. Therefore, it's got multiple meanings bubbling in it all the time. So 
Re'echa, which means your kin, could also be read as Ra'acha, your enemy. So is Jesus doing that classic form of rabbinic hermeneutics? He's telling him to read the text. How do you read it? And you can actually read Re'echa as Ra'acha or Ro'a, which means enemy or evil. So now we get deeper into it. Is Jesus saying you have to love your enemy as yourself, not as a sort of quick, cute turn of phrase, but as an interpretation of how you can read the text? This is what the rabbis do all the time. And, then, and it's one of Jesus' favorites, right? To love your enemies. Right. Is he getting it from this verse? As a, as a, in a classic rabbinic kind of jujitsu of the, of the text? Um, well, I, I, I just want to thank uh, the, uh, the uh, commentators in here. Because again, to contextualize Jesus then as a Jewish teacher, and then you read, he's saying, he's not saying what is written in the law. He's saying, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Isn't that cool? Yeah. How, do you read it? How do you read it? Well, I can read it this way. And then it gets, then it's like layers upon layers because the Samaritan is the enemy and also the kin, right? And that was like, okay, thank you. So we'll just stop right there.